0: In this episode of the 80s Rewind Show podcast 90s special, I speak to one of the most definitive voices of the 90s. And at the end of the show, I'm going to play you a track from their new album. Stay tuned. (laughs) I'm Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Hey, everybody, this is Ivan from Men Without Hats. Hello,
1: everybody, this is Francis Dunry from It Bites. Hi, everyone, this is Andy from Modern Romance. Hi, everyone, this is
0: Charlene. Hi, this is Dennis Cetha from Music Hi, I'm Dick Haywood. Hi, this is Kevin from Fiction Factory. And you're listening to the 80s Rewind Show podcast.
1: If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hands now. Welcome your host. The face for radio burgess.
0: Hello, hello, it's the one show podcast, and this is the 90s special. I did my first 90s guest and it could not have gone any better. But before we go to that, a massive thank you to everybody that shared the show and spread the love about it, because it's been amazing. I've had some fantastic emails from people saying how much they've enjoyed it, so thank you very much. And thank you for everybody that subscribed to the YouTube channel and has been watching it on YouTube. Links in the description if you've not done that yet, and you can actually watch the interviews. So get yourself on there, subscribe and give it a look. Um, and you can see some of the fantastic guests we've got on there as well. And there's all sorts of stuff I'm going to be putting on there over the summer and over the next few years. I'm really enjoying the YouTube stuff. I didn't think I would, but I'm actually really enjoying it. I've always been a microphone person in a room in the dark, that kind of thing. <laughs> but I'm actually quite enjoying it. It is, it is quite fun. Anyway, on to today's episode. On this episode of the 80s Rewind Show 90s Special, we dive into the backstory of the iconic band Jesus Jones with an exclusive interview with the lead singer, Mike Edwards. We discovered their struggle to get into the top 40, how they found inspiration from their experiences touring and playing music worldwide. And we get behind-the-scenes look at their albums Liquidiser, Doubt, Perverse and Already, which took three years to complete. As well as that, we hear how they formed the band and also the inspiration behind such songs as Right Here, Right Now and International Bright Young Thing and Real, Real, Real. It was a great conversation. Mike's a lovely guy. We had a good old chat. And I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it with Mike. Uh, Once again, thank you for subscribing. I'm going to bring you some more 90s guests as they come along. And don't forget to stick around to the end of the show because we've got a special treat for you. Mike and the guys have allowed us to play their last song, "Wider The Wind Burned, on this episode. So check it out. It's fantastic. You're going to love it. Right, let's do it. So if we can just go back a bit, like mm. growing up, was your house a musical house or did your, was your parents into music?
1: Um, at a crucial point, yes. In the early years, no. Uh, although my dad had uh, had been a a choir boy and, and has kind of maintained a love of, of singing and opera and stuff like that. But it wasn't uh, um, kind of a, a major part, a major feature of the uh, of the household. My mum was very into contemporary music. I mean, she bought all of the Beatles albums as they came out, Stones, Janice Joplin, Hendrix, all that kind of stuff. Um, I got into music at the age of about nine, as kind of most people, uh, most kids do or did or whatever. Um, but it was, uh, it was, Kind of around about that time that my dad got um, an acoustic guitar, got a, a, a classical guitar because he wanted to teach himself uh, to play um, a classical guitar. Um, it, it kind of worked, and he kind of faded out over a couple of years. As he started fading out, I started picking up and messing around with it. And my parents got really irate with me doing this. You know, it's a very nice um, guitar that he had, and there's me just smashing away. And they said, "Listen, if you want a guitar." go and buy your own, go and get a job, do some kind of work and, and buy your own. So I did, uh, and it was really that that kind of instigated me playing music. I mean, I often used to listen to my parents' record collection think, oh, I'd like to do that bit, and I'd like to do that bit, and I'd like to do that bit. And it could be anything from the drums to the singing, the guitar, whichever was most prominent on the record. But it was, I suppose, really my, my dad getting that guitar um, and then insisting I've got my own that really got the ball rolling. Because I'd say within... A year or so of, of getting that guitar, I, I got together with um, Jen, the drummer in the band, and we decided we were going to form a band. And bear in mind, this is, that was the summer of 1977. Right. Uh, no, 78 rather. And uh, yeah, so, so it, it all happened pretty early. And, you know, uh, Jen is still with the band now. <laughs> Fantastic. And which album or song was it that really turned your head into wanting to play the guitar, write music, become a musician? um I, I don't know if there's any one particular one but I, the the first single I ever bought was Hellraiser by The Sweet, yes. and I absolutely loved that you know I just loved it but it was fantastic I was absolutely enthralled by it um and then after that like I said it was just more a case of kind of oh, I'd like to do that bit of um paperback writer or I'd I'd like to do uh, that bit of um, Painted Black or I'd like to sing like Jimmy Hendrix does that uh, or Janis Joplin does here. It was that that kind of thing more than any one particular foundational track, I'd say.
0: That's fantastic. I mean, the sweet what a great band they were. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Awesome. absolutely yeah. Well, oh, you don't need me to agree with you. You know, I'm <laughs> going to say that anyway. <laughs> I mean, Mick Tucker, the drummer. Wow. What a powerhouse he was. Underrated drummer absolutely underrated you know I've, I've never thought of that i should go back and listen um because i still listen to hellraiser and Baller and blitz and stuff like that with my kind of um pre that pre-adolescent ears i don't really pick much out of it um in that kind of analytical way but so that's interesting i should go back and check it out Honestly, he's great. He's he's completely underrated for a 70s drummer. Because really? you had John Bonham and such like that. I think he gets overlooked. But oh, the man had such skills. Yeah. He was brilliant. I, th- I think that was the thing with the suite. I think they, they were overlooked because um, they were kind of perceived at the time as very kind of bubblegum pop. Although it's yeah. fascinating when you listen to something like Hellraiser, I think, really, that that was pop music in those days? Because it's, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a nasty piece of guitar playing going on there. It's, it's, and I think they were a band that um, were very capable Um uh, and very good, very uh, had a, a strong style of their own, but just got overlooked because of their their hit singles, really. In, yeah. in a similar way to, to Slade, I think, who are another band that are absolutely magnificent. I mean, Noddy Holder's voice, it's got to be probably the greatest voice in rock music. Oh, just yeah. astonishing. You know, there's a track off uh, the first live album they cover um, Darling Be Home Soon by John Sebastian. Um, uh, and, I, and it's it's one of many songs that's got a chord sequence in it that is exactly the same as right here, right now. So I don't know how <laughs> influential that was. But at the end of that, Noddy Holder just he, he goes up an octave and he hits the chorus an octave higher than he has done before. Oh, my God, it makes the, hand, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. So anyway, yeah, another, another underrated band. Sorry.
0: Yeah, I mean, Noddy seems to have no end range. He seems he to sing higher and higher and higher. Until <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, pretty true.
0: He's wonderful. So you got your first band together were you starting to songwrite at a really young age or were you sort of just doing covers and finding your way
1: through uh yeah co- covers initially like everyone else and then you 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 start uh, uh writing your own stuff um which of course was absolutely appalling um <laughs> yeah i i know there are some people and uh I think Jerry and the band has, has talked to Miles Hunt because Jerry played in The Wonder Stuff for, for a short while to, to help them out. And I think there's, there's one of the songs off, off The Wonder Stuff's first album that was, I think, maybe the first song Miles ever wrote. It was written when he was something like 16, you know. And it's obviously it's on their first album. It's a really good song. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just full of admiration because, you know, I didn't write anything even halfway decent for the first 100 songs, I'd say. It was all absolutely dire before then. So that's, that's impressive.
0: And so yeah, and you get like George Michael wrote Careless Whisper at 16 or something. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was uh, anything but a prodigy. I, I think I was always one of those people that had to work very hard to, uh, to be able to achieve the things I achieved. I, it, it it didn't come easy.
0: <laughs> well, each road leads somewhere, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Can we talk about just getting the Jesus
1: Jones band together, how it formed originally? Yeah. Well, it was a, a process of accumulation really, rather than kind of one big moment. Um, People came in, people came out. The the constants really were um, Jen, the drummer, um, who, as I've said, you know, he he and I decided we were going to be in our first band in 1978. Um, About five years, four years after that, um, we'd all had a already had a few permutations and alan the bass player joined from that point about 83 84 something like that that was the core of the band and then people came in people came out uh jerry joined the band when we we moved up to london this was 1986 87 something like that and then in 87 88 i i I, uh, met up with this guy in a pub in north london who um I could tell from his shoes he was a skateboarder. So we got talking about skateboarding, and then we decided to go out skating together. And then I said, oh, yeah, I'm in this band, and we've just got a bit of interest in record company. It looks like we're going to a, get a record deal. And, the, and um, we needed someone to play all the samples. And so I asked my skater friend Ian if he fancied just poking around on the, the, the keyboard and playing, playing the samples. And that's really how it crystallized. It was uh, not really, as I say, one big moment. It just kind of gradually came together, and ding, that was it. Fantastic.
0: Where did the idea for the samples come into the music for you? Did you write with samples in mind or were you writing songs
1: and adding the samples after? Um, I think initially, because I had a more of a traditional songwriting background, initially I'd put the the samples in as kind of ear candy, but, but very soon... Um, into the process you know there are definitely songs on that first album on liquidizer that are written that started with samples so they were a, a, an integral part of the songs um i can remember clearly that the the night that i'd bought this the, my first sampler um which obviously you know you know very primitive by today's standards but i was just amazed it was absolutely fascinating and it it opened really opened the doors to me i've been listening to um the stuff at the time, I suppose, would be Age of Chance. Um, really importantly, The Shaman, um, and this always baffles me. That but 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 Popolite itself were were never an influence on us, but they were certainly doing that kind of thing. I don't know why they weren't an influence on us. That's that's never really. I don't know, it's it, it's it's a mystery to me. But um, so yeah, Beastie Boys, um, Run DMC, you know stuff like that where some samples are an integral parts of it. When I found that I could do that and I could do it really easy, it was uh, a, a, a one of those um, hyperspace moments. You know when suddenly all the stars go like that. Um, it was brilliant. Yeah, just just an absolute eye and ear opener. And was it easy to do samples live
0: back in the day? Then was it easy to to get that stuff to work?
1: uh yes yeah it was um but in a primitive way i mean we had uh you had the the akai samplers which were the kind of they were the 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 foundation stones really um they're the ones that everybody use um they got the job done well for the time but they were very uh very primitive. I mean they the, the memory was absolutely tiny and you had to have really hard drives to to back that memory up and the hard drives themselves were really small and it's fascinating. I mean now what we take around the world um you know basically what you can do with an iPad um, that was a, a thirty-kilogram giant flight case that we had to fly uh, around the world. I mean, now we, you know, we're we're going to tour in America in the summer, and it's it's on a small, a twelve-inch screen laptop, I think.
0: Fantastic. I didn't know if it was like the Who we had a big like tape to tape machine, a big. Uh... <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean, we we funny. we, we did, did actually start with that. I had a four-track Porter studio, and I think they were very early on when we started down that route. Um, we use that. Then we got our record deal. and We got some money. That's when we bought the Akai samplers. But yeah, actually, so it was tape originally cassettes. In fact, <laughs> I love cassettes. <laughs> I, hate, I hate them. Absolutely <laughs> what a dreadful medium. So, so many of the, the, these the media were awful. I mean, I don't get the vinyl thing in, in the slides. You know, I'm aware that we sell them and I, I understand all the other arguments, but as something to listen to, it's appalling. It was something that was just crying out for something like CD to come along. And now you don't even need that. I think it's brilliant, you
0: know. <laughs> I'm a love vinyl, me. Um, so Liquidizer was the first album. Was it an easy album to make? Was, were the songs already there or did you have to sort of write in the studio at the same time?
1: No, right in the studio. It, it was really hard to make, actually, um, uh, because in in the run up to Liquidizer, we'd been uh, we'd been releasing uh, singles fairly quickly, and in those days, to try and boost the sales of the sing- singles, you would bring out um, multiple versions with multiple different uh, mixes and uh, other songs on there. So basically, in that period, the, as fast as I could write, the songs were released. I, I couldn't keep up. With the demand for the record company for songs, I mean, they they would over the on three singles, you'd pretty much have to write an album's worth of songs right. um, to, to to keep up with that that demand. So I then had the album to do as well. So yeah, a lot of it was get up early in the morning, write the song, go to the studio in the afternoon, record it, get home at midnight, get up early in the morning, write the next song. It was it was very much like that. It was it really as they were needed. It was it was tough.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you're treadmilling as well. It was kind of just.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't the the only time I really started getting ahead of myself is when we started touring because you have so much time uh, when you tour just to think about things, which is really important, I think, for creativity. But also then later on, when we got bits of technology, you could actually start creating stuff on the road, and you didn't. It didn't matter if you weren't creating entire songs as long as you had that initial point to start you from. Then you knew when you had. a a clear week at home you could really get stuck into two three four songs and and get them well progressed so it was kind of repeated touring that helped with the songwriting process which is (laughs) sounds ironic i know so so many people complain that they have no time to uh to to write songs because it was touring but it was completely the other way around for me fantastic info frico was the first single is that right um yes it was yeah yeah that was uh it was the the first song on on the demo that we recorded we 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 had a kind of make or break demo really um there's uh jen the drummer jerry the guitarist and i went on this holiday uh in spain in 1988 and it was pretty much all right we've been doing this for a while and it's not really going anywhere what are we going to do and I, I said look i've got an idea this is how we're going to do it i've got this sampler I, we, we should present it with very much me at the forefront um and yeah, you know, just leave it all to me. I'll take care of it. And that the the and we'll make a we'll make a demo. And we have got these three songs that I think should be on there. So we went we went ahead and we did that. And it wasn't quite finished um, when Jen took it into um, took it into Food Records, who he knew as DBM. Uh, management. They were a management company. They managed people like Zodiac, Mind Warp, and um, Voice of the Beehive. We were looking for a manager, and it just turned out they happened to be a record company as well. And we, we we signed a deal with them. But yeah, the first thing they heard was Info Frico, and that's the first thing that most people heard from us was was Info Frico.
0: What surprised me was um, I was reading online that Bruno Brooks really championed that song, and he's the last
1: person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It surprised me at the time as well. Um, And I was, you know, even then, everyone was going, what the hell is this about? Why why is this guy doing doing drive time radio one? Why is he getting behind something that um, otherwise you'd expect to hear at kind of nine or 10 at night, um, if you were lucky on on radio one? Um, I don't know, I I didn't, I I didn't uh, question it. but it struck me that maybe, I mean, he was, yeah, was fair play to him. I suppose maybe he had his, his ear to the ground. We were starting to get some press. It did look like, you know, people were talking us up a lot. And maybe he just wanted to, to get ahead of things. And kind I of thought, yeah, that's that's the kind of thing I want to ally myself to. You know, it could be that he just really liked the song and wanted it on his shows. Um, but it was a surprise, yeah. Um, that was <laughs> one that we're very happy with.
0: It makes you wonder. I was thinking about it the other day, that... um Uh, people in America won't know this, but um, Ken Bruce obviously has left BBC Radio 2 because he wanted to do his sort of own playlist. And the Mm. BBC insisted that he play certain records. I wonder if it was the same back then. And this was Bruno's sort of, you know, actually, I really like this song and I want to play it. If he sort of broke the format and got in trouble a little bit, I wonder.
1: Yeah, I I wonder. I mean, because it was very... uh, Even then, DJs didn't have a say. I think there was... It could be that we were right towards the end of his show and he's kind of played all the songs in his playlist and maybe he's kind of talked for two and a half minutes or less than he normally did so he could squeeze our song in. I, I don't really know. Or it could be that, you know, whoever was in charge of the playlist, the, the program director or something, suggested he do it. I really don't know. But I don't think it was very different then. Uh, I do think that it was you know, DJs played the playlist and without really any kind of deviation from it.
0: Yeah, it's true. I'll ask him one day. I'll, I'll interview him, and if I find out, I'll promise I'll come yeah, back. To yeah, you. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Be good to know.
0: So at this point, we're up to uh, day out the second album. Um, was that an easier album to write because you've been writing on the road and writing songs, or was that did that take a long time again? Um, was there was there more pressure to write hits on this one? Did they sort of say, look, you
1: got to get a bit more commercial, you got to get more radio friendly? Was it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 the the the. Confounding factor is that it's not like kind of we did one then stopped and didn't did the other. It was just constantly going I was constantly writing songs and there were some things from the past that we'd bring back up and and redo um we'd already i mean uh a lot i mean, i think doubt came out at the start of ninety one and quite a few of the songs for that were written at the end of, say, 1989. So some of them were were already uh, uh, over a year old, as far as we were concerned. Um, but, yeah, certainly something like International Bright Young Thing, its working title was um, hit, because that's what I wanted it to be. You know, it was very important to us. At that point, we'd had three songs that were just outside the top 40, only just. And it was... Really frustrating, really irritating that we were almost there, almost had our foot in the door, but didn't quite have it. So, um, the pr- the record company didn't need to put any pressure on me. It was me thinking, you know, I'm fed up with almost being there. I want to write something that does get there. Obviously, the record company were all in favour of that, um, <laughs> but uh, but th- there was no kind of you need to sit and write down a hit now. You know, it's it was entirely my. My initiative is my, my impetus um but yeah so so basically kind of uh the, the doubt was being written as liquidizer was being released and toured um and i yeah i don't remember doubt being anything like as as difficult as liquidizer um yeah. that uh yeah that that did seem a, a lot easier a lot easier to do but i don't think it's as good an album um as it as the ones either side of it um it, it doesn't. To me, it doesn't sound as good. The remix versions of of the, the hits are what made them hits, and I think they are better versions than I would have been able to do myself. But at the time, I was going to think it's not really the version that I wanted. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a funny album, and there's there's for me at least there's some some of it. There's very little of it I really like. Actually, I have to say. Um right here, right now, I've always loved, always thought it was a great track. Um some of it's good, but but uh, there are tracks like Bliss. I think is on there. Trust me, we often have fun playing live. Um but there, there are quite a few tracks I just, oh, I know. Stripped. Yeah, Stripped was written as a result of going to Romania. And um, we li- I listened back to it, you know, 10 years ago, something like that, and thought, there's actually something worthwhile in there, but just not in the version that we released on Dow. So we remade it in 2014, and we've been playing that version every so often, ever, ever since. I really like I'm Burning. I like how you use the backward samples on it. I think I that's think, <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. That was one of the tracks that that track is, at that point, would have been about six years old. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe a little less, but not much. Um, so I wasn't. Uh, we we'd played it to the record company when we were des- They were desperate for songs, and I was thinking, well, yeah, maybe have this one. And they said, yeah, great. Let's let's put that on. Um, welcome back to back Victoria as well. I mean, the very fact that this is 91. So John Major was prime minister then. Welcome back. Victoria's actually written about Margaret Thatcher um, <laughs> and it was written in the Thatcher era. So, I mean, I'm guessing I wrote that in something like 84, 85. Um, wow. And yes, no doubt six, seven years later, I guess that shows that we were kind of fairly, uh, not desperate for material, but we we were we were looking further than we had done had done on liquidizer.
0: <laughs> so right here, right now, was that written about the Cold War ending?
1: Is that right? Did I read that right somewhere? Yeah, basically, yeah, that, that's it. It was about the Berlin Wall coming down. I I remember just it was that event was one of those things that that I. Having you know grown up in the seventies the and eighties, you just thought that's always going to be there. It's one of those permanent things, one of those m- permanent features of life. There will always be this divide between East and West Europe. And when it came down, it was mind-boggling that you could have change on that kind of scale. Such a collapse of of one system, and also um, a very uh, a, a time of amazing optimism. Thinking, well, if we can change that. Um, then you know what else can be changed. If something that big can, can disappear, and you know this is the end of it. You know, growing up in the eighties, there was always that threat of you're going to be nuked. That was, if you look back, there's so many films from that era that are about that subject. About you know what what happens if you, in, in event of a, a nuclear war. So for that to go away was you know a bit of a relief, um, but also a, a, just an astonishing scenario to live through. And that that's really what. Inspired the song um, lyrically at least, but musically, um, uh, Simple Minds had done a cover of um, uh, "Sign of the Times," um, which I really didn't like. I just thought it's that's not hasn't added anything to it, and it's kind of missed out all the good bits of it. Um, and I, so I, I thought I'd, I'd like to. I had this I had the the lyrics right here, right now going on. I think all kind of in, in the background, and I just actually took a loop of "Sign of the Times." Uh, and everyone was into the Velvet Underground at that time. Um, So I got this Velvet Underground-type guitar riff uh, and put it over the top of the loop of Sign of the Times and had the words for right here, right now. And so the original version was basically just Sign of the Times for three (laughs) minutes and one two-bar loop of it. I love that. And then um,
0: International Bright Young Thing, was that about you travelling around and meeting new people and the excitement of travelling?
1: Yeah it, it was written on a, on a plane flying above Siberia coming back from Japan at the end of um some mad year of touring I mean it- that might have been at the end of the touring of 19... 19- no it wouldn't have been actually um but you know, i know that in 1991 we toured for nine months of the year so we're doing a lot of touring and we're going to new places and we're always meeting new people interesting people we're having a brilliant time i, I absolutely love touring to this day and we we always did we were never one of those bands that moaned about it because it was just the most exciting thing and you meet great people and have great experiences and that's um it was nice coming out of britain and kind of seeing people who felt the same or just understanding how they felt different you know we'd seen a lot of things from from romania immediately after their their revolution to japan which was culturally um a real shock but in a in a fascinating and exciting and interesting way um so yeah it was, it was just uh, uh, writing down how it felt to be part of this kind of this this wider world that I was experiencing firsthand. It's all very well to kind of say, yeah, it's a wider world. and We all have things in common. But when you actually meet these people and, you know, uh, talk to them and, you know, from such different cultures, it's really exciting. Um, so, yeah, and especially when you're kind of out of your mind on on a lack of sleep, <laughs> eight <laughs> hours into a 12-hour flight or whatever. It is. Yeah, uh, and knowing that you've got to write a song by the time you get off the plane. Um, <laughs> yeah. There might be some aspects of that I wouldn't write now, but, you know, what, what the hell. It's fantastic. I know it's obviously going to talk to you today, so I dug out my forty-five original copy. Um <laughs> right. Yeah, it still has yeah. its
0: wall sticker in the corner.
1: Just to- <laughs> wow, blimey, that's a, that's a real article from the past, isn't it? That's it. I went and
0: bought this. So um, because me and my mum grew up, we were always skinned. Woolworths used to um, put their singles out. And then after about three weeks, they would put it in a bin for 50p. So it's got my right. 50p. Not to devalue the song, but I had to wow. wait three weeks that's to get it. That's <laughs> <to>, <laughs> pretty That's really good. Yeah. I, I always had to wait out to get the records I wanted, but <laughs> I got them in the end. So, yeah. But um, what I love about the album, looking at it in that, in that version is it like it was it was a like a song time capsule because you was writing about everything around you at the time i think it's a lovely aspect of those records
1: yeah i mean and that was that was the intention i did want to capture a kind of a point in time which is you know going back to talking about writing international bright young thing there was always an element of kind of yeah i'm not especially happy with that line but i'm writing it now and tomorrow's another day um and so we we were very much of that that mindset i mean it, you know we we knew that we were writing pop music even though that that was a, a little bit of a, a dirty phrase you know going back to i think about slade and the Sweet and how you can be denigrated if you write pop music we knew that's what what we were doing and i thought that that was just part of it let it be part of that time a lot of it does sound very dated and you know i don't mind that at all i didn't really i had no plans but i didn't expect much of it to last i think and the fact that we are the fact that we're playing some of those songs now is a kind of double-edged sword it's kind of nice but there are sometimes it's funny we often talk about it i mean never enough is is the one song that in rehearsals everyone goes oh really do, do we have to you do it live it's brilliant at you know it's a great rocking song and you can see why the record company said yeah you got to put out as a single you can see why people want to hear it but in a rehearsal studio oh man that's pulling through. We try not to play.
0: <laughs> I just love how like the album was completely different in in parts. Like real, real, real. It's got like a tribal start to it, and a tribal feel as well. And then you've got the pop. It's it's, it's a wonderful collage of the time. I think it's fantastic. It's it's, it code- it's it's no, honestly, it's a great album. I just thought I'd tell you what I mean. <laughs>
1: well, <that's laughs> fabulous. Well, I mean, it's you know, I was intending it for, to be a kind of mishmash of things. Um, so I'm I'm really pleased that it it became it became a very easy thing. Um. The the approach became very straightforward, it, it, and it, it was quite nice kind of thinking, well, here's some mysterious Bulgarian, Bulgarian voices. Why not put that with ACDC? Whereas, <laughs> you know, kind of three, four, five years earlier, I wouldn't have thought of it for a moment, but it just kind of opened up a new way of working, um, which was, you know, which I'm really pleased about. And I think, you know, kind of uh, coincided with a lot of people taking that approach. And now I think it's a standard approach, which is great. Yeah, yeah um we get to like perverse about 96 there was a large gap between the albums was that due to touring or just writing or just wanted a break or a oh, uh, perverse was actually 93 already was 96 Um perverse yeah we did a, i said in 91 we did nine months of touring 92 um yeah the, things slowed down a bit and I, and I was recording and writing uh perverse and then you have the usual record company thing i think we finished perverse in something like June, July, August, something like that. And the record company said, yeah, we're going to put it out in January. So we had a six month wait just for a more kind of beneficial release time. Um, uh, by which time I, I think it was probably too late. Um, that's my favorite Jesus Jones album. I think that, I think they get, they get better as, as, uh, as they go on. Um, already the album that, that came out after that. I really like that. There's plenty of that I can listen to. Um, and, quite a bit of perverse as well whereas doubt i won't really listen to at all and um a liquidizer every so often i'll i'll more well, very very rarely every nine months 18 months i might listen to something off it but only if i have to try and remember how the words go because we're doing a song we haven't played for 10 years um but yeah so so perverse really proud of that album. we did take time over it i think yeah. as as a reaction to um uh the very sloppy nature of doubt um uh warren libsy was the producer of perverse and i i just think he did the most fantastic job because he took songs that i'd done it was very much a kind of george martin to the beatles not on compare myself to the Beatles but someone who could add in um such a creative input to kind of take a song and and say yeah it's it's great but you need to add another section on the end there and I've never had that before it was just here's the song that we might chop out a bit before the first chorus this is go away write something else do something else add another guitar part it was it was like that and he would then do some stuff that just blew my mind so we took time working on Perverse. We then, with Already, which came out after that, um, there were two versions. I think there was one uh, recorded with a couple of guys who um, worked in a a studio that I co-owned at the time. And the second version was the one that Martin Phillips, who produced uh, right here, right now, that he made. He was very painstaking. I think we took something like six months to record his version, having already done the entire album once before with some other people last time and then the delay for the record company. So there was a three year gap between perverse and already, but yeah. it was only, but it was a year and a half, oh, I suppose two years between um, doubt and perverse.
0: I mean, perverse is a very like sounding like polished sounding album as well. It sounds completely
1: different, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, I mean, it did, co- it did coincide with me thinking that i should stretch things a little because the first two albums were often written in in a hurry they were very formulaic um because i had no time certainly liquidized i had no time for anything other than the formula you know as long as it went verse verse chorus verse chorus middle chorus end fine i I knew i could get it done in the morning and record it in the afternoon (laughs) Um, But versus it was the first time i'd had chance to kind of explore things a little bit in, in all sorts of ways um and yeah, Warren was very good at adding that kind of that sheen, that that polished thing in In ways, some ways now that sound very dated, very of their time, kind of late 80s, early 90s. But in some ways that I still think are, are just fabulous in creating great piece of music, great pieces of music, I think.
0: Yeah, it's great. It, it's it's polished, but it's sort of darker and rockier and that's that's the bit that drew me in like it's like oh that's the bit that really sort of grabbed me like this isn't the jesus jones that i know and love this is a new band that scares me a bit and i like it
1: (laughs) yeah i mean and that we we felt that that was more of a reflection of the actual band that we were there's in a way kind of more in common with liquidizer and perverse than doubt and perverse because of that it was us kind of and to some extent reacting against our, our kind of our our pop notoriety i guess um uh yeah I, th- I think that's that's pretty much it it was um it, it was a statement album in always we were trying to say this is who we really are and this is what we're really doing and and the reason it's called perverse is because we also felt that we were bucking the trend we were going we were very much swimming a- against the the tide having everything been pushed forward in the the era of kind of a liquidizer when that kind of technology in dance music was new uh, and then doubt onwards when it suddenly became much more accepted and acceptable. Mm. Um, so things, in my view, were kind of progressing and moving forward into the future. Then when uh, grunge happened and then started the, the, the start of... Um, Uh, uh, Britpop we seem to be taking huge steps backwards and I couldn't understand why I'd be out in these techno clubs hearing sounds like which I'd I'd never heard before giving the same feeling that I had when I was listening to Blockbuster by the uh, by the suite or Hellraiser by the suite that same kind of feeling of excitement like this is amazing this is I've never heard something like this before I didn't understand why we were then going back and listening to our our, our parents record collections as they were without really much change uh, and so, by doing an album, we made a big deal out of the fact that we were making a rock album the way a techno artist would make a techno album, mm. um, which was a perverse thing to do. It was a perverse. It wasn't. It wasn't the smart move to make an album that wasn't a very traditional guitar album. Um, yeah, but we did anyway because we felt that was a reflection of who we were and what we were about.
0: What What I did the other day for fun was I played. Um... Nine Inch Nails' is Downward Spiral album and then Perverse next to each other. And, I, right. and I, was, okay. I was sort of going, it could be like a father and son kind of relationship.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found that interesting we went to America um, because the industrial scene had, had started to kick off there. Obviously, you know, Nine Inch Nails and Ministry and people making comparisons with us and that. And I guess it's just because we were using the, the technology, in particular drum machines, I guess, um, uh whereas yeah I, I felt there was a big difference between what we did and the industrial stuff the industrial stuff didn't have didn't really have a groove it wasn't based in dance music um it's yeah. not to denigrate it in any way but it 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 sounded different it came from a different place but yeah you know i've kind of um uh it, it's it's quite nice when people make that comparison um just because it it shows me that there were similar things going on in different places at the same time
0: yeah. Yeah. Like you're saying, like, Popble Itself, like, you know, I had mm. come it? yeah. it's almost the same, but completely different, which is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last year, you brought out some new singles, uh, Wired wider Windburn and um, Where All The Dreams. Is there a hint of a new album on the way? Is that why he's releasing
1: the singles? You know, I'm not sure about uh, about an album, um, because these days, you know, it, t- it takes a long time to make an album, um, because we, we do it in a DIY way, um, not... Because we're cheapskates, but actually it's very easy to do that now. The technology has got so good um, that I I can do it all in in the room I'm talking to you from now. Um, uh, And when I say I can do it all, I'm I'm getting uh, files emailed over from our bass player in Chicago. Um, Jen, our drummer, now has this uh, electronic drum kit and he just plays into his computer and then sends me a tiny little file and that's it, you know, I, and I, I can then give him John Bonham sound if that's what he wants or someone else's sound if, you know, if that's what he wants. So I can tie it all in here, I guess is what I'm saying. But no, to, but to doing it that way and also writing, just finding the time find, find the time to write. No, it's not really that. It's actually finding inspiration. You know, I've, I've been writing songs now since my early teens and uh, I'm kind of late 50s now, so... Um, it gets harder It gets harder to write, I think. It gets harder to listen to music in the same way that I did before. I still find a lot of music really inspiring, um, but not as much as I did. I don't feel kind of part of a scene. I don't feel involved in a scene in any way. So it's harder to write. Um, it's lengthier to record. Uh, and as a result, um, I don't think an album... I think we might accrue an album's worth of songs over the next five years is probably the best answer to your question. Okay. Um, Are you still, in your mind, an
0: environmental songwriter now? Do you write differently? Like we were saying, obviously, that was very about the surroundings. Do you feel the same? You write the same way now? Or do do you you sort of of write, not to order, but
1: in a sort of non-personal way? Um... I don't. I try and steer clear of the kind of the socio-political commentary, which I did, I did a lot of before. Partly because I did a lot of it before, and but partly because it doesn't. Unless you can tie it into uh, an emotion, I, I don't think it's it's all that engaging. Um, I still struggle with writing lyrics. I was. I, I never set out to be a lyric writer or a singer for that matter. Um, I find it very difficult. I don't think I do it very well very often. I, there are sometimes I I I can do a good job of it, but I think it's more by accident than by design. And I do think <laughs> when I write words by design, they're generally something I'm not all that pleased with. Um but um I, I tend I tend to write just if I've got something to write about, or I want to write, then I do it. That's that's how it's done now. Um, again, in complete contrast to you know, liquidizer, which is you will have a song by the end of today. <laughs> that's that's all there that was. Whereas now, yeah. So that's why again, an album would take so long to do because I'd be waiting to find something to write about that I wanted to write about. Um, yeah. That's fair enough. Um if people want to find out about yourself and Jesus Jones, where's the best place to find information about the band and the tours and the albums and uh jesusjones.com I guess you know we're on we're on Twitter, we're we're on all of the socials the and the usual places that people would would, would want to find out. Um it's always always pretty obvious. Um Ian, the keyboard player from the band, does a great job and he's got a, a team of other people helping him spread the word left right and center, so we're we're very easy to get hold of. If you want to find out
0: fantastic and I'll put links in the bottom um, thanks Great. for chatting today, Mike it's been an absolute pleasure mate oh,
1: it's a pleasure to speak to you as well
0: a massive thank you to Mike Edwards for the interview don't forget to like and subscribe and tell your friends about the show and to play us out Jesus Jones with a new track Wired and Windburned
1: Days in the sun He's got the right